PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to PTJ's The Bottom Line for December 2008. I'm Donovan Stutel, along with Dave Corvoisier. Bottom lines translate the findings of selected research articles for clinical practice. Bottom lines are not intended to substitute for a critical reading of the original articles. The bottom lines for the December 2008 issue of PTJ were written by Dr. Eric Robertson, assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia. Our first of four bottom lines this month summarizes Factors Influencing the Use of Outcome Measures for Patients with Low Back Pain, a survey of New Zealand physical therapists by Janet Copeland, Dr. William Taylor, and Dr. Sarah Dean. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Despite pressures to demonstrate outcomes using an evidence-based approach to interventions, the use of outcome measures by physical therapists for patients with low back pain has been reported to be persistently low. The researchers wanted to examine the beliefs and attitudes of physical therapists relative to their use of three common outcome measures, the Oswestry Disability Index, the Roland Morris Disability Questionnaire, and the Quebec Back Pain Disability Scale. A secondary research question looked at the level of exposure to outcome measures by physical therapists and whether developments in education and treatment philosophies, such as the International Classification of Function, Disability, and Health, or ICF, have an impact on the decision to use outcome measures. Who participated in the study? New Zealand physical therapists in private practice and public hospital settings participated in the study. What new information does this study offer? 40% of New Zealand physical therapists reported using outcome measures during the past six months. The researchers reported that having a master's degree exhibited the strongest association with using outcome measures. Familiarity with outcome measures also showed a strong association. Time was not found to limit the use of outcome measures. How did the researchers go about the study? Two focus groups, one from private practice and one from a public hospital, were conducted. A subsequent survey was mailed to all therapists listed in a telecommunication database in both private and public settings. The survey had a 65% response rate. Qualitative and quantitative data were analyzed. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? The use of outcome measures remains low, presenting a formidable challenge to the profession to capture data related to the effectiveness of interventions. Increased knowledge of outcome measures might help to remedy this challenge. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? Survey responses might not reflect actual practice, and based on the wording of the survey, routine use of outcome measures might be lower than is reported in these data. Any survey sampling of less than 100% of the population is subject to errors related to that portion of the population that was not sampled. Our next bottom line summarizes Instability, Laxity, and Physical Function in Patients with Medial Knee Osteoarthritis by Dr. Laura Schmidt, Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald, Dr. Andrew Reisman, and Dr. Catherine Rudolph. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Several reports have identified factors that contribute to functional limitations in patients with knee osteoarthritis, including weakness of the quadriceps femoris muscle, 
joint laxity, and self-reports of instability. The relationships between these factors and the relative contribution to function have not been examined. The researchers sought to examine self-reported knee instability and its relationship to medial knee laxity, varus alignment, quadriceps muscle force, and the impact of those factors on function. Who participated in this study? 52 individuals with medial knee osteoarthritis participated in the study. In patients who had bilateral knee osteoarthritis, the most symptomatic side was examined. What new information does this study offer? There were no differences in alignment, laxity, or strength among the three groups of participants. Self-reported instability significantly predicted function beyond that of muscle force, laxity, or alignment. Neither laxity nor alignment contributed to predicting function. How did the researchers go about the study? Participants were classified into three groups based on reports of knee instability. No instability, mild instability not affecting function, and instability that affects function. The researchers assessed the following. Limb alignment, which was measured with radiographs. Joint laxity, which was measured using stress radiographs. Quadriceps muscle force, which was measured using a maximal voluntary isometric contraction with electrical burst superimposition on an isokinetic dynamometer. And function, which was measured using the knee osteoarthritis and outcome score and a stair climbing test. Data were analyzed to determine both group differences and relationships among the variables. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? Self-reported knee instability is not correlated with knee joint laxity, but it contributes to low functional levels. Knee instability is different from laxity and is an important part of knee osteoarthritis. Clinicians might want to include questions related to self-reports of instability for patients with knee osteoarthritis when taking a medical history and when identifying impairments to target for intervention. What are the limitations of the study and what further research is needed? This study had a relatively small sample size. The researchers used a homogeneous sample of patients with medial knee osteoarthritis, so results cannot be applied to other forms of knee osteoarthritis. Future research is needed to further investigate the relationships between knee instability, function, and other important factors related to functional loss in knee osteoarthritis. Our next bottom line summarizes non-contact ultrasound therapy for adjunctive treatment of non-healing wounds, retrospective analysis, by Autumn Bell and Dr. Joseph Kavorsi. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? Clinicians are routinely challenged when wounds do not heal well, despite optimized wound care interventions. Low-frequency non-contact ultrasound therapy is a relatively new adjunctive treatment for non-healing wounds with a limited amount of evidence supporting its effectiveness. There is a need to include more subjects in the population studied for non-contact ultrasound therapy. These researchers set out to study the impact of adjunctive non-contact ultrasound therapy on wound health for non-healing wounds. Who participated in this study? 76 patients from one medical center who presented with non-healing wounds were treated with non-contact ultrasound therapy. 
What new information does this study offer? Both wound size and percentage of healthy granulation tissue improved during the course of adjunctive non-contact ultrasound therapy. How did the researchers go about the study? The researchers performed a retrospective chart review for patients seen between 2005 and 2006 at one medical center. Non-healing wounds were defined as those wounds that failed to progress to at least 15% closure in the prior two weeks of therapy. Treatment parameters, wound size, and percentage of granulation tissue were recorded for analysis. How might these results be applied to physical therapist practice? To promote wound healing for non-healing wounds, clinicians should consider non-contact ultrasound therapy as an adjunctive therapy. What are the limitations of the study and what further research is needed? This single-arm retrospective analysis does not allow for an examination of the effectiveness of non-contact ultrasound therapy compared with other wound care interventions. All of the subjects were from one medical center, so generalizability is limited. Further investigation is needed to determine the optimal treatment duration for non-contact ultrasound therapy, as well as to investigate a possible palliative effect of the intervention. Our final bottom line this month summarizes use of protection motivation theory, affect, and barriers to understand and predict adherence to outpatient rehabilitation by Dr. Emma Grindley, Dr. Samuel Zizi, and Dr. Alan Nessapani. What problems did the researchers set out to study, and why? The purpose of this study was to examine the use of protection motivation theory as a screening tool to predict adherence in a general population of patients with orthopedic conditions. Protection motivation theory is a preventative health behavior model that has been used in more than 20 different health-related fields to study intention and behavior. There's a limited amount of research using protection motivation theory in rehabilitation. The research that does exist involves athletes. Protection motivation is theorized to occur when an event is perceived as both noxious and likely to occur, and the coping response is perceived as being effective for preventing future events. Who participated in the study? 229 adults who were new patients and were prescribed four to eight weeks of physical therapy participated in the study. What new information does this study offer? The screening tool identified several factors related to patient adherence to rehabilitation based on protection motivation theory. In-clinic behavior and attendance were predicted by affect. Dropout status was predicted by affect, severity, self-efficacy, and age. How did the researchers go about this study? Prior to treatment, the subjects were administered a survey tool consisting of the Sports Injury Rehabilitation Beliefs Scale, the Positive and Negative Affect Schedule, and a Barriers Checklist. Adherence was measured using a variety of tools such as Attendance Ratio, Dropout Rate, and Sport Injury Rehabilitation Adherence Scale Score. Reassessment was made at a later date to determine adherence. Three age groups were assigned, and the data were analyzed. How might the results of this study apply to physical therapist practice? A better understanding of factors predicting adherence might help clinicians address non-adherence and maximize patient participation in physical therapy. The screening tool used in this study might help predict patient adherence in a general population with orthopedic conditions. What are the limitations of the study, and what further research is needed? 
The study examined patients only from one clinic. In addition, adherence to home exercise programs was not assessed. Finally, the screening tool used, the Sports Injury Rehabilitation Beliefs Scale, had been previously used only in athletes, and the validity of the screening tool in this population was not assessed. Additional research is warranted to further examine the concepts discussed in the current study, as well as to assess the predictive validity of the screening tool. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825. Thanks for listening.